Hey, y'all. You're listening to Diagnosing Sitcoms and Movies, the DSM podcast. We help make mental health more comfortable by using Black movies and shows we know and love and culture to remove stigma. So join our convo with your host, Courtney Copeland, licensed mental health counselor. And Dr. B, licensed professional counselor. Before we jump in today, I just wanted to mention that our YouTube page is now up. So for anyone that missed our uh, launch party Zoom, then you can go back and check that out. We had so much fun. That was such a good time. Rosie, didn't you have fun? I had an amazing time. And I, I, the games, oh my gosh, I think that was like, that was the best part of it, other than the trailer release. (laughs) (laughs) The games were definitely popping. Um, and I think, I think the audience enjoyed the games too. So it, they recommended that we do that more often. So maybe we can set that up. <laughs> yes. I definitely feel like we might need to do another DSM podcast game night because our listeners are so yes. much fun and they're super smart. Like they got every single one. <laughs> they, did. they did, except for me. <laughs> I wasn't going to mention it, shot. but you know, <laughs> anywho. Yes. Yes. Important. Sportsmanship is always a good uh, characteristic to have. (laughs) I also wanted to, um, I guess, commemorate this episode with acknowledging that I just finished my first week in my PhD graduate school program. (laughs) Only 259 more weeks to go. Um, (laughs) But Dr. B is always um, is my light at the end of the tunnel because she just finished her first week as a tenure track assistant professor. Yes, yes. <laughs> I know, I know. So what was your experience like as a first year PhD student? Just a lot of reading. Oh my gosh, isn't it? Can I give you a tip? Yes, please, I know. all of them. <laughs> okay, so one tip. Don't tell anyone I, I told you this. Just kidding, it's, it's aired on a podcast. Um, right. <laughs> So one tip that I would, I, I would give my students is like, I, like you're going to have 20 readings, literally assigned 20 readings for a week. Um, I would definitely start with your textbook. You know, that's the main source of the material. Usually um, if, if there are articles assigned, I would choose the one that relates and the one that you uh, find more appealing and interesting that you would actually make the effort to read. Um, and then the others, I would simply skim. You are going to learn the art of skimming. Um, oh, girl, I am already uh, a masterful <laughs> in that art. Exactly. <laughs> I've been in school forever. <laughs> right, exactly. So you have to really learn that art of skimming. I'm like, you're not, when students tell me, it's so much reading, I can't keep up. I'm like, you're not going to be able to keep up. Just read the, the abstract for the ones that you think you can't read, that's going to be like 20 pages. And the discussion, okay? And here's here's the other note that I would give you. I would make a note, like like take a sheet and try to write out a little note to yourself for each of the readings so that when it's, if it's discussed in class, you're able to kind of spit and then your classmates are going to be like, oh my God, she read. And it's like... (laughs) Yeah, not really. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, all right, guys. That's the tips and tricks from the Diagnosing Sitcoms and Movies podcast. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that segment. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> 
But this episode, we are talking about, I believe, one of Rosie's favorite movies of all time. Uh, actually, it's not even really a movie, and I had to keep correcting myself. Uh, it is a miniseries. And so we are talking about The Temptations miniseries, originally aired in 1998 for television on ABC. Did it? I don't, maybe it's just because they did such a good job staying true to the time of the film. But why does this feel mm-hmm. like it's so much older than 1998? Well, because, you know, this is, it, it kind of takes us on the journey of, of the development of the temptation, you know? So for us to see them in the early, like, you know, 60s and what they had to deal with, you know, being a part of Motown and then, you know, the development of Motown at that time. And also one of my, one of the most interesting parts of the Temptations movie, I'm sorry if I'm getting ahead of myself, but um, was really as an adult, really seeing the problems with segregation, the problems with, you know, like the actual just racism when they're traveling and touring. Right. And so one of the things that Otis definitely talks about in the film was that one time, they go to this school and there's a clear divider uh, amongst the audience and these students, black students on one side, white students on the other side. And then the next time that they come, they're actually together. And, you know, just really documenting that part was interesting um, to, to let us know, like, this wasn't an easy journey, but white people loved our music, but still treated us like trash which is kind of the same sentiment in which we're going through where right now white people are enjoying our culture, but then don't necessarily respect us as individuals. I definitely agree. And I also um, am glad that you had spoke to that. Otis was the one that had mentioned it. And so this entire miniseries was um, brought about because Otis had wrote a book called Temptations. And so the entire story is um, basically told from his lens because the book was written from his lens. And so mm-hmm. there are there were cases and litigation against him because of some minor inaccuracies, um, mm-hmm. and some major inaccuracies as well. But I guess he was telling his story. So we have to look at it from his point of view. And so because there are actual real people involved that we're going to be discussing, these are human character beings, real life people. I just wanted to kind of give that um, disclaimer that we are going to be diagnosing from what was discussed and and shown in the film. And we don't want to in any way take anyone's legacy um, based off of what was shown in the film. And so we are not diagnosing them as individuals. We are diagnosing their representation in the film Temptations. And with all of that said, I just wanted to say, ain't nobody coming to see you, Otis. <laughs> <laughs> The best line. But you know what? I never picked that up as a kid. Really? How shady that was. <laughs> never picked that up as a kid. No. And now to this day, like, I don't know. Like, when I watched The Temptations, it was like, it was a sad story. Mm-hmm. But, like, as a kid, it was a sad story. Obviously, it is a sad story. But um, as an adult, there were some parts that were actually kind of funny to me. Yes. <laughs> including that part, right? Well, before, and before we get started, I think it's important for us to, for one, kind of give a little summary of what the Temptation movie was about. 
I don't know if I'll do a good job about it. Give me your, okay. your quotables first and then we'll jump into that. Okay, yeah. All right, so um, my favorite part, uh, my quotable would be when um, when Otis comes home after getting his hair permed. <laughs> Actually, before that, before that, because the barber was like, I think you would want the New Yorker. And <laughs> Otis looked at him like, the fuck? You know, and so then he gets this, and you, and then you get to the scene where both him and oh my god, why am I missing his name? I want to call him Paul. It was Al. Al, Al. Uh, him and Al are in the chair with their perm, and they're like, that like burning that standing up so. <laughs> right? And he said, and I thought y'all were singers. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, that had me dying as an adult. Um, and then when he gets home, and his mom is like, oh, "You did it!" and he and he's like, "Do you like it?" And she's like, "I'll think about it." And so when she comes out, shame, and um, right, I think about it. And so his dad or his stepfather, I'm realizing, and correct me if I'm wrong, it does seem as if that's not his biological father. I've never noticed can, that. Right, because oh, okay. it, he said, I don't, it, it, it's just the vibe that I get in the relationship with them. That, that it's like, no, no son of mine, but it, it, was, it didn't seem like that was his original son. So maybe I'm making that up. Maybe it's just something that I'm looking into a little more deeply than I need to. A little transparency, you know. <laughs> know. Maybe. I do feel like there's some daddy, daddy son issues. Anyway, so he. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. He's like, what did you do to your... No, his little brother says, what did you do to your hair? And then his father comes in and he's like, go wash that stuff out. He's like, I can't. Tell him, mama, tell him I can't. And she was like, I just decided. I like it. And I was like, see, that's the type of mama I'm going to be. I want to support my kids and their crazy hairstyles too. But then his little brother, his little brother had a dig, you know, as little brothers do. He was like, it looks like he lost a bet. <laughs> that was funny to me. <laughs> so, like, those this, this are, is what losing a bet looks like. It looks like right. I die and lay to the side. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and then, of course, uh, the conversation at the table uh, talking about how Cornbread got his name. That's another, con- uh, another quotable that I enjoy. But that's it for me. What, what were some of your favorites? Well, you know I'm a Bessie Patty woman. So my <laughs> Without David Ruffin, y'all ain't nothing. Without ben David Ruffin, y'all a bunch of fake ass temptations. <laughs> How did I not have that on my list? <laughs> okay, so David that one Ruffin. Was, <laughs> that one was funny. But then I felt funny and hurt for when they were looking at him out the window and uh, Shelly went outside to tell him that he was kicked out of the group. He said, y'all can't do me like this and ripped the paper up. Since <laughs> you ungrateful son of a bitches. I said, he meant that. Yes, Leon. Yes. <laughs> he played the hell out of David Ruffin for sure. You know what? I'm sorry to cut you off, but there was another line from David Ruffin when he's in a limousine and he was like, um, David Ruffin and what's their names? <laughs> and they bust out laughing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
yes, that is my shit. Like, I was like, and what's her name? I said, he's shady. Go ahead. Uh, special shout out to uh, <laughs> Leon for playing every uh, R&B singer from the 60s. Uh, <laughs> Did it spectacularly. Yes, I wonder yes, if that's really his voice. Was so, that really no, his voice? The singing, the singing uh, one was not. But when he was uh, supposed to have been high and drunk in the house and he was singing, I refuse to let you go. Let that you was him. Go. <laughs> All right. That was really him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so The Temptations is the story of uh, the originals Mighty Temptations singing group, how they uh, formed in their early years, found success with the historic record label Motown, and continued to grow uh, their careers until, and the story actually follows them all the way until most of their um, untimely passings, unfortunately. Um, I do believe that Otis was the one to was of the original members was the one to live the longest. And since he was, he was, he gets to tell the story. It's kind of how it seems. We're hearing his point of view because he outlived everybody. I don't know how fair that is, but it gave us a great film. Miniseries. It did. Rosie, why is this one of your favorite movies of all time? Um, it's one of my favorite movies because I enjoy all of the songs. All of the songs. Um, even like the songs that of course, like are for the temptations, but also the songs in between, like, you know, when they have, um, for instance, I'm the first song that comes to mind is when they're in the milk truck, Alice father's milk truck. And the scene starts with there's a moon out tonight. (laughs) Like, I mean, there's so many different songs. Um, So as a kid, I like, I literally know all the songs in the movie. I can sing along with all the songs. And I've, I've started to even learn some of the dances and everything. So I think that is, it was like my, my version of high school musical, if you will, because there's, Mm -hmm. there's the, the sing-along, there's the dancing, but then there's also the drama and the storytelling that I really enjoyed about it. So that's why it's my favorite because I can sing. Why not? <laughs> very true. <laughs> music is important. And music is very important to this movie. I, we've seen, unfortunately, some uh, documentaries where the music could not be cleared and it was terrible. So whenever someone is doing stories about musical figures, it's just always important that they can use that original music. Um, and like right. you said, not just that for The Temptations, but all throughout the film. I think Motown being involved was really awesome because it allowed them to use quality, true to the time music. Right. So like, I don't know if you know, but my first job was at Johnny Rockets. I was a hostess. And so I the, had no idea. <laughs> yes, it was it's very embarrassing. I had to wear the hat and do the dances and everything. A couple of my friends walked past and laughed at me, but you know, it's okay. Um, wait, wait, wait. So what is a Johnny Rockets? Johnny Rockets is, it's like a 50s, 60s themed uh, hamburger restaurant, like hamburgers and milkshakes. And so there's like tiny jukeboxes at every booth and like it's, yeah. And so they play this type of music. Yeah, it's really cute. And so the, my favorite song that I used to hear every single day at work was the, um, the song that they opened the movie with. Um, I can't sing, so I won't sing it for you, but, um, (laughs) 
<clears throat> yeah. So that opening credit song is right. what they usually have. You know what? I, I remember Otis doing his, because he was copying the the singer, the lead singer in the beginning. He was like, yeah, I'm feeling it. He was really feeling it. <laughs> <laughs> And so I remember the song, but it's not coming to me right now. I, and I see, I see the scene, but I can't think of the song. Dang it. I have Whoever no idea what it's called, but it's like if they often call me Speedo, but my real name is Mr. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's that one. But baby, the type of acrobats that they were doing on that stage. Them the roll and, and spins and dives. And, and the, the push-ups. And the, the oh girl. my God. Girl. We don't get entertainment like that no more. No wonder the singers <laughs> got all the booty. Like, look at, look at their performance. <laughs> right? Ooh, the athleticism <laughs> you had to have in order to sing. Ooh, I just love watching them dance and gyrate like that on the stage. <laughs> Gyrating. <laughs> but yes, I'm the same way. If I go to a show, you better light yourself on fire. You better earn my little coins so that I worked hard to come see you okay. with. <laughs> right, like Kevin Hart said, throw some flames on that bitch. <laughs> mm. And so um, they start out, the movie starts out really showing uh, the characters, how they met each other, how they originally formed their groups. Um, and then, And one thing that really stuck out to me was the fact that so many groups were um, teenagers when they first started they were really really young and that kind of continues to this day a lot of musical artists are really young and I really feel like it's designed to take advantage of these kids like it you can work them for long hours they don't understand the contracts that they're signing you can take advantage no. of them and they'll listen to you like mm-hmm. right and so the only difference now is that it's like kids aren't doing it together as groups they're doing it individually. Even I mean, and we, we, I know. And we've seen, we've seen the music industry abuse and misuse a lot of groups' talent. I mean, we, we're talking not only the Motown groups, but now we're even getting into the point where TLC had their, their issues with their contracts. Um, new edition. New edition. Right. So all these people are coming <laughs> Meg out. Meg the Stallion. <laughs> okay. Talk about relevancy. And so, like, this is really just kind of giving us an insight to what is it, what is it really like being in the music industry, you know? But I just, I was like, wow, the first person was, uh, what's her name? Johnny, Johnny May, your, your producer, <laughs> yes. your manager. Now get your ass in here. And, you know, like she said, mm-mm-mm, they sound good. She was ready to, t- I think she was ready to take advantage of them on a whole nother level. But I'm glad they got out of that one because she was shady. It only took she them the shady. question of money one time and she, oh, get out, get your ass out of my car. <laughs> it was so funny. Oh, she another funny part to games. me. When they went to the radio station and Kid uh, from Kid and Play was the um, the radio disc jockey. The disc he, jockey, yeah. He was like, come on, we got to hurry up. I got to be back before his last tear drop fall. Why, why Blue was like, wait, that's that's a window. That's, that, a, wi- that's, that's a window. That's a window. He said, go through it. <laughs> Show ass through the window. <laughs> and so when he gets downstairs, he was like, oh, look at this milk truck. 
Gotta give me some milk when I come back. Al almost lost his shit. <laughs> he didn't mention anything about that milk truck. I was like, Jesus. Al really had some problems, but we'll get into that in just mm. a second. Mm. <laughs> so, but oh, the taking advantage of the uh, of the teenager. Yes, yes. And so I don't know if you ever saw the movie Talk to Me with Don Cheeto, and he was supposed to be Petey Green, who was another famous radio disc, disc jockey. But uh, uh-huh. Petey Green has said, I'm sorry, I apologize if I call Mr. Barry Gordy a pimp. <laughs> I'm sorry forever. <laughs> Making it sound like he was plucking these little ghetto kids out of the hood, teaching them how to walk, yeah. how to talk, and how to get out there and make his money. <laughs> And I was like, he was. He, That's exactly what he was doing. And listen, Smokey Robinson was right there to to write the songs for him. Let's let's talk. Okay. What what? There's uh, so much. Gang, There's so much. <laughs> gang banging. Okay. Gang, he wrote the song "Gang Banging." Look that shit up. <laughs> it's a real song. I'm concerned about it. Why was that not out here? If he, I'm like, you wrote wonderful hits. For so many people. Why would you write that for yourself? Why? But we'll, okay, that's a, we'll table that one. And there was, there was really like, well, first, I wonder if Smokey still got it in him because I haven't heard a song written by Smokey in so long, but that's, he is like a genius. You don't lose that type of talent. So I wonder if he's just sitting on hits and it's just like, ah. We're going to have to do a Google. No, yeah, good, good point. Uh, I mean, but he's he's probably earning a lot of royalties. Do you think? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Perhaps? I mean, of course. Yeah. Yes. I mean, he doesn't have to put out any more hits. I just wonder, you know, if the pin game is still strong. That's all I want to know. Smokey, if you're listening, let me know. I can't right, sing the song for you, but <laughs> <clears throat> I'll try. Me. Okay, you I'll can you can sing later. the new theme song for um. <laughs> For the DSM podcast. I will. Um, let me let me call him up and get him the right something. Right. Otis was spilling a lot of tea in this film too, though. Like low key. Like I did not Ooh. know that Diana Ross was messing with Eddie Kendricks before she started messing with Barry Gordy. Mm-hmm. I also did not know that Florence Ballard was basically the reason why him and his wife broke up. That's crazy. And you know that introduction, she was like. <laughs> she was like, hi, Flo. I mean, hi, Joe. I'm Flo. Like, girl, did nobody ask you to shorten my name to match yours? Oh, hussy. Mm-hmm. Trying to take my man. And like, you know, that was something I like that Florence I noticed. in real life, though. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't even be mad at her because I like her in real life. <laughs> I know. I, I take it back. I called her hussy. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> No, but, you know, um, Otis' behavior after he cheated um, with giving her, trying to shower her with mm. presents, and she she was not trying to have it. Even after they were separated, he was still trying to get in them, in them draws. Like, you know, I'm, I'm going to come over and hang out with you. And she was like, no. No. She fool. really, she was done. Right. She was done. And, and I, I, I appreciated was- that. Yes, I was proud of her because a lot of women do 
it would be very easy, I'd rather say. Yes. Not a lot of women. I'm not going to lump anyone to an, in, into any categories, but I would say it would be very easy to just accept the gifts, continue to be showered, continue to live the lifestyle, build a pattern with somebody who you, mm-hmm. you know, have a child with, have been with since you were a teenager. It would be very easy mm-hmm. to fall into a negative pattern with somebody that way. And so I was very proud of her for putting up her boundaries as soon as she, from the film, as soon as she saw like, oh no. You was just, did you just kiss Flores goodbye? Oh, hell no. Nah. Walk home. Okay. <laughs> okay. And it and was like, just, just from that kiss alone, she knew something was up. Mm-hmm. You know? And so from my understanding and how Otis filmed or created that story, it was like, it was just a kiss on the cheek. But after that, shit, you know, we might as well go ahead and do the whole thing. If my wife won't treat me like this. Shady. so many thoughts about otis i don't know if i want to diagnose him i don't know if from what he gave us we fully can't i feel like it's purposeful like yes if i'm writing a story about me i'm gonna be the star of my story but i know in someone else's film i sure enough could be the villain so like i feel like in in his story he made himself perfect like tried to paint himself as perfect even his infractions he still made not so bad right exactly you know and so he's the one that kept the group together you know um he's the one that kept everybody responsible i believe there was even a line um that came from uh david ruffin you know saying that you always were hard on us you know and so when they were actually coming back together as a group to do their performances and so it did kind of give him this halo effect that, yes, I am the person that kept everyone together. I am the one that, you know, kept the temptations going, you know. Um, and even Eddie talked about it when he was just like, so you're just going to you're just going to get rid of all the, the uh, temptations before we know it is just going to be you and blue. Right. And so I think. I do think it was it was over exaggerated how just perfect and wonderful he was. All of that led me to feel like and like even this stuff that he did share made me feel like Otis probably has some serious power and control issues. Um mm. I felt that probably did stem from the relationship that he had with his father, stepfather, whatever we are saying that he is, father figure. Mm-hmm. Um okay. for, because it did it did seem like his dad was the man of the house. And once Otis mm-hmm. got to a point where he was trying to assert himself as an adult man in the house, his dad was like, I'll get the big piece of chicken, nigga, don't you ever forget it. And so I okay. feel like he kind of carried that into his, um, the way that he kind of managed the group. Even when, um, John was it Johnny May? Even when Johnny May mm-hmm. tried to do for the group, he said, wait a minute, this here, my group. This my group. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely felt like um, he had some some serious power and control issues. And I, I was kind of playing with, tossing back and forth, narcissistic personality disorder. I wanted to get your, your intake on that. <clears throat> well, I, would, I wouldn't say it's, it's narcissistic. I mean, he has a narcissistic personality. I wouldn't necessarily diagnose him with it. You know, I do think that he, like, you know... He enjoyed being the the leader. He just, Mm -hmm. I just think that he knew what he wanted. Mm -hmm. I think he was very goal-driven. 
And he wasn't going to let any or anything stop him from seeing his vision through. So being someone, I am very goal-driven. I I am, you know, at the point where it's like, if I make up my mind to do something, little to nothing is going to stop me from getting it done. And I think that's, he had tunnel vision for his group, period. You know, um, because that's what he wanted. That was his goal. So nothing, not, not your alcoholism, not you beating your wife, not Motown, y'all are not going to stop me from doing my, my thing. That, so I wouldn't necessarily, it's narcissism, but I do feel like he might have put more into the group and it might be self-esteem things, you know, mm-hmm. because the group was him. He, he couldn't, he couldn't separate himself. See, that's what concerned me. Like, he couldn't separate himself from the group. It was an extension of him. However, there still was no one man above the group. So, right. Was it no one man above the group? Or is it an extension of you? At the end of the day, is it you above the group? And that's exactly why Eddie called him on his shit. Mm -hmm. You know, Eddie was like, you say no one above the group, but you're just ready to replace every fucking body every time you get a chance or you see a threat to to what you want, right? Right. Especially with Paul having to sit out a couple things. It was like, all right, well, we just get someone to replace Paul. And I thought that was so messed up. <laughs> and he said, he's going to throw Paul away like Alabama trash. I said, what are they doing to Alabama today trash? <laughs> Eddie is so okay. afraid. Listen. He gonna listen, tell me about like listen. Alabama trash. I don't know why that was so funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> Out of all the states, Alabama just does their trash. I mean, work. they both they both are from Alabama, so I got that. But but like Alabama trash. <laughs> right. I'll just say, hey, right. what are y'all doing to y'all trash in Alabama that you right. <laughs> could not stand to see him treat it like that? <laughs> I you know one thing I did realize my first time my my first time watching this. No, this is like my 500th time watching this movie, but watching it, especially to, to talk about it, um, how blue took off running from Otis when he actually approached him to join the group. And he was like, Oh man, I thought you were trouble. So it made me think about like, was there gang banging happening? (laughs) Um, in that time, as early as that time in Detroit where you have to take off running because somebody trying to ask you to be a part of the group. Mama Rose wasn't having it though. But, you know, she was like, um, now how I know you any different from these other folks? You know, he was like, I don't know, ma'am. He, I just, and you know what? I do want the type of friendship that Blue and Otis had. I feel like that's us. No, ma'am. What? No, he was, ma'am. Okay, explain. Explain. Okay. And so I fully and prepared to do so. I diagnosed (laughs) Blue (laughs) with dependent personality disorder. All right. Okay. Can you explain dependent personality? Pull it out. Because our listeners need to know what dependent personality disorder is. I want y'all to hear me flipping through, getting my page together. Because Dr. B didn't didn't have her book today. She's unprepared. So, (laughs) 
a pervasive and excessive need to be taken care of that leads to submissive and clinging behavior that fears oh, and fears of separation beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts as indicated by five or more of the following. Difficulty making everyday decisions without an excessive amount of advice and reassurance from others. He stopped several times and said, what do you think, Otis? Or when it came down to the vote, he really didn't want to express his opinion. Um, needs others to assume responsibility for most major areas of his or her life. When he originally was asked to be in the group, he said, it's not up to me. We had to go ask Mama That's Rose. True. Has difficulty expressing disagreement with others because of fear of loss of support or approval. Again, not wanting to voice his opinions. Has difficulty initiating projects or doing things on his or her own because lack of self-confidence in judgment or abilities rather than a lack of motivation and energy. Goes to excessive lengths to obtain nurturance and support from others to the point of volunteering to do things that are unpleasant. That man had to relearn how to walk and taught himself how to dance. Because he was not going to be the weak link in the group. He needed to to be there and get the support from his group mates. Um, yeah, he was, even will, he was even willing to go through cortisone shots, even though the doctor told him it's time to hang up his, his dancing shoes. Exactly. Feels okay. uncomfortable or helpless when alone because of exaggerated fears of being unable to care for himself. I don't know if that one necessarily applies to him. Um, urgently seeks another relationship as a source of care and support when a close relationship ends and is unrealistically preoccupied with fears of being left to take care of himself or herself. I don't want neither one of us to be dependent. Okay, when you put it that way, no, I don't want that to be our Jeez. I was just saying, like, the loyalty he had to Blue. But, I mean, when you say it like that, never mind. Don't be Blue. <laughs> More Otis. Chill. Okay, how Which about... Which is how about, why I felt like Otis might potentially be narcissistic. Because I felt like you know that Blue is dependent. And you use that for your benefit. Okay, well, fine. How about we be, like, Paul and Eddie? I will be Paul. Don't you let them throw me out like no Alabama trash. I won't. I will not. <laughs> and if and if you can't sing, then I'm not going on out on that stage. And that I was, was not it. on that stage. I'm not on that stage. <laughs> Damn right. Shoot. <laughs> okay. I I really appreciate this movie. I feel like it was important for us to include this movie in um, the podcast and really talk about it. Because it really, it talks about and it shows Black men living and coping with life. There's a lot of life Mm -hmm. that happens in this movie. Aside from just being in a group, there's a lot of life that happens. And all Mm -hmm. of the main characters are Black men. And we get to see Black men handle things differently, um, come with different experiences, different um, childhood things that happen to them. We get to see Black friendship relationships. I just really appreciated seeing a film from a black male lens and it feeling honest. Mm -hmm. Because I feel Mm -hmm. like we don't always get that in in film. Even when the main character is a black male, sometimes it doesn't feel like genuine reactions. But it being based on a true story, it felt like, no, this is really how people would respond being put in this Mm -hmm. situation. So I really liked Mm -hmm. being able to see that from them. When you say that, what's what's an example? What's a scene that comes to mind? I can think of a few. Unfortunately, the first thing that comes to mind is 
the scene where we first start to see Paul spiraling, spiraling out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, and seeing how that presented in a party. You've been at that party. Like, we've all been at that party where one of the family members ends up drinking too much and too much truth mm-hmm. comes out or you see how they're really feeling and it gets a little awkward, but everybody knows that they're, they're going through something. So they just try to be there for that person. It just felt really genuine. Um, unfortunately, that part was somebody's pain, but I liked seeing the camaraderie of the support, them supporting each other. If Paul's not going on that stage, I'm not going on that stage. I liked mm-hmm. seeing the, the black boy joy in the beginning of the film between Blue and Otis and them joining the group and them practicing at the beginning. And we got to sell sex. Come on. We got to mm-hmm. one, two, uh-huh. three, Al. <laughs> right. And so I, I like, I just liked seeing black men as the characters telling their story genuinely. Yeah. You know, when I, I actually think about Otis again, um, sharing his mother dying of cancer right? That scene Mm -hmm. where they're on the porch and he's, you know, she's telling him that, no, she's going to make it to the next, next, uh, concert, you know, she's going to be all right. And he does cry, you know, Mm -hmm. um, because it seemed like that was, she was his biggest fan. She was clearly his biggest fan from day one. And so it was almost like you could tell, like he was mourning, her loss even before she she was going. Another um, another Otis moment that was very genuine and um, showing real life was you know the depiction of him lose, finding out when he lost his son, mm-hmm. you know, and going through that, um, or even just him playing basketball with his son. And, and when that little and, boy said, "Why are you always on roll?" Oh, he said, "Roll, yeah. real ugly." Road. But I know him. Like Otis coming to the realization, like just being a provider isn't enough. Isn't Your enough. son wants you. He needs you there. And I feel like that might have been a, a value that he picked up from his father younger because his father mm-hmm. was, every time we saw him, he was coming in from work or he looked like he right. had on his work clothes. And so, right. and his, their biggest issue was Otis wanting to sing as opposed to going to work in the factory. In the factory. Mm-hmm. And so Otis really seeing like, okay, just being a provider isn't enough. That's not all that I wanted from my dad neither. So let me really be there for my son. And then they were able to build a relationship. And as soon as he was able to do that, as soon as he was able to do that, you know, it was like uh, a difference for him. But then he died later. So it was, it was really unfortunate, an unfortunate part of the of the, the, the story when you say, um, the personal things that they were dealing with. Right. Uh, that's what I think about. There's a lot of grief and loss in this movie and like in oh different my ways. Yeah. Not just the death of people, but the loss of like Paul not being able to be in a group. That was a real loss mm-hmm. for him and, and, and mm-hmm. caused a lot of the, you know, things that were going on. Um, and just for everybody, just the, 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 trauma that David experienced at a young age, um, mm-hmm. you know, well, being bartered to a pimp as a child and then being raised mm-hmm. by that person. I couldn't imagine. Right. And so it's almost like when someone says that or discloses that to you as a group, 
Do you do you really want to take someone like that in when they say rules are made to be broken? He, he already gave us the red flag. He did. He did. Um, you know, even when he was outside of the of the uh, tour bus, reflecting on where he was, mm-hmm. I think I think that was his moment to say, you know what, this is where I am in my life, and I I didn't expect to be here, but shit, I'm here, and it almost seems as if like right then and there he made made this drastic switch to being this asshole. Like he seemed very somber and willing and just eager to be a part of the group. And then he turned into this controlling asshole. Like does does fame and power really do that to people? And it's like, yes, clearly. I think that for him, uh, the less common with people um, who have experienced um, childhood trauma, um, the, when he was outside of the bus, he was crying. He said, for the first time in my, in my life, I belong to something that's right. And mm. then so him wanting to be a part of the group so bad, that's that emotional hunger that he was trying to satisfy because he didn't have that fantasy bond that he was trying to build within the group. But then once he achieved that, because he was at such a place of lack when it came to nurturing, all of his relationships were turbulent. So once that was satisfied for him, he's used to a certain level of chaos that he had to maintain. Agreed. Agreed. So, and so when you, when you said that, I immediately went to the scene when they're at the park where Blue and Eddie Mm. is correcting him about how he treated his woman at this picnic, at this Motown picnic. Like you, you can't just talk to your woman like that. And by the way, you haven't been coming to practice. What's that about? And who is this wingman that you keep bringing along with you? Okay, so there's so many things I have to talk about there. <laughs> well, let's go there. Let's go there. So whenever this is this is to listeners, um, and I'll use examples. Um, whenever there is a person who is either in the limelight, has a little fame, or they just are in a position where they get to move a little bit different, and they have that one friend around that does absolutely nothing but has multiple positions and jobs and hats for this person and no one understands why they're around. That's the go get drugs person. That's the person that goes and gets the drugs. Uh, In this instance, it was Flynn. If you think about watching this film again, I said, oh, I don't know why it made me think about Lamar Odom. But Lamar Odom, when Chloe and him had that television show, there was that short, older, fat, yeah. white dude who he kept around him. And Chloe was like, why do you hang out with him? I hate him. And then I was looking at him and I was like, that's the dude that goes and gets his drugs. Like he does, he, ha- he serves no purpose. There's no, no one seems to like him. He's just here. That's the guy to go get drugs. So whenever I think that they were, the rest of the group was justified in their dislike for Flynn. They're not wanting Flynn to be around because they knew what he was, what he was about, what he was there for. He was the go get drugs dude. And so they was like, yeah, Flynn or whatever your name is. <laughs> Girl, get your ass out of here. <laughs> and then also um, talking about David's relationship with Tammy Terrell, which was another turbulent relationship. Um, Tammy Terrell had actually suffered um I believe it was like brain tumors. And that is what ended up killing her because she had so much blunt force trauma to the head because she was being beaten in multiple relationships with famous singers. 
David Ruffin wow. being one of them. Uh, James Brown being another one of them. Um, yes, she ended wow. up really domestic violence is what really caused the illnesses that killed Tammy Terrell. Um, I did not know that. Yes. Yes. And then uh, I believe I saw it in a documentary. Maybe it was her unsung because a lot of people in this film, a lot of characters that are described in this film had unsung Mm -hmm. shout out to TV one for highlighting these unsung black heroes. Um, She Marvin Gaye, like went through a lot of um, survivor's guilt of feeling like, well, maybe I should have did more to get her out of those relationships. Maybe I should have, you know, spent more time with her so she didn't feel like she needed to be in those relationships, uh, in those romantic relationships with those men. Like, as a friend, I should have done more um, mm-hmm. because all of that blunt force trauma, there is, um, there's a rumor, it has not been confirmed nor negated, that she was uh, hit in the head with a hammer. Wow. By one of her intimate partners. Mm. Mm, and that mm. that is yeah that coupled with the years of traumatic brain injury constantly being hit like that um it just wasn't good and if david is had disclosed earlier to the group members like this uh the strap came out it seemed like the strap just came out on its own like if he's mm-hmm. used to that 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 violence and that is the expression of care i can only imagine what that relationship was like right right so Hurt people hurt people. And I really wish that a part of um, Barry Gordy's boot camp of basically training these kids how to go get his money was really getting them some help. Because so many of his acts needed it. I mean, when you think about the time, mental health was not on an average American's mind, yet alone a black man's mind, right? But group dynamics should have been. No, because it was a matter of getting the money and the way that they, the way that they treated the temptations, especially with how, you know, um, Otis would say, it was just like, there were so many temptations. They were replaceable. Mm-hmm. You're replaceable when you're in a group. You, no one can p- replace, you know, Diana Ross. That she's Diana Ross. But That's just because she was fucking the, the boss. The, no, the Temptations got Motown their first Grammy. They should have been treated with some more respect around that piece. But it was a matter of what they could do, not who they were. Anybody could do that. There were kid, they, were, they knew there were kids that were hungry to sing. So it was just like, I'll just get the next kid that wants to be a part of this group. Otis created that precedent with his his willingness to replace people. I think, I think maybe he didn't case. create it, but he definitely played into it. It okay. didn't help all their right. case at all. Thanks. But overall, in general, okay, so uh, we were talking about David Ruffin. David Ruffin, I wanted to talk to you about his diagnosis. So okay. being that he was high on cocaine for the entire uh, second episode of the miniseries and mm-hmm. half of the first of, I diagnosed him. Uh, with stimulant use disorder, severe, with the drug of choice being cocaine. That's really the only one that was shown. But it was the, at the time, 60s, 70s, and 80s. I'm sure he was dabbling with some weed, maybe some quaaludes. You never really know. But all they showed was cocaine. So I just specified cocaine. Um, we talked about a little bit about his um, 
I feel like he definitely had attachment issues. And so if he was my client, that's something that I definitely would want to work with him moving from that anxious, preoccupied attachment state to a more secured one and diagnose him with, okay, so this is where I need your opinion. Okay. I'm thinking both or one, but borderline personality disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. We don't get... Uh, enough of his personal day-to-day experiences to know whether or not he was really experiencing all of the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. But a lot of his behavior is explained by some of the um, adverse childhood experiences that he had as a child. But what do you think about the borderline borderline personality disorder? Would you like for me to talk about the criteria for that? Yes, please. All right. Uh, We'll go through the five or more of the following. Frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. A pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships characterized by alternating between extremes of idealization and devaluation. So going from, I really just want to sing with y'all to being, y'all ain't nothing without David Ruffin. Mm. Mm. Uh, <laughs> identity disturbance, mark, market, markedly and persistently unstable self-image or sense of self. Mm -hmm. impulsivity in at least two areas that are potentially self-damaging, including spending, sex, substance abuse, reckless driving, binge eating. I think all of those except binge eating were shown. Um, Recurrent suicidal behavior, gestures or threats or self-mutilating behavior. Not something that Mm -hmm. we necessarily saw, but effective instability due to marked reactivity of mood, intense episodic dysphoria, irritability, or anxiety, usually lasting a few hours and only rarely more than a few days. So that irritability, definitely. Um, I remember when he was fussing at them when they came to see him at the house. And then after they left, he started laughing. He he was like, y'all tickled me. Y'all believe me. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so, <laughs> right. Like, this ain't a game. Like, this is a game for you in your mind, right? Because mm-hmm. you you do what you want to do when you want to do it. Mm-hmm. Were there uh, more? Yes, a couple more. Mm-hmm. Chronic feelings of emptiness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, inappropriate, intense anger or difficulty controlling anger. Frequent displays of temper, constant anger or recurrent physical fights that definitely could be the de- domestic abuse. In mm-hmm. transient stress-related paranoid ideation or severe dissociative symptoms. I agree. And so I would say that with the with I would go with borderline and then, you know, I would go borderline and then I would do substance substance use or what what did you call it? Uh substance use disorder, uh severe with the drug of choice being cocaine. Co- yes. Yeah. So that I would I would go borderline because the borderline is what's in what induced or created the substance use mm-hmm. as a result, as a as a symptom. So I agree. I agree. Um yeah, I mean it was it was clear just based off of, of several instances in the movie. Um, that he definitely was more of that borderline, especially when you talk about his, like, I want to just be a part of the group to y'all ain't nothing without David Ruffin. So mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. I agree. And then like him being at first fine with 
Because in real life, they said he was fine with leaving the group. Like he understood mm-hmm. leaving the group, but then he would just pop up at the shows. So like they did show one a couple of times where he just popped up and Dennis was like, this motherfucker. <laughs> you can see Yo. about that with his words. <laughs> but yes. they said he was just doing that regularly in real life and they had to hire more security to, to stop him from doing that, just showing up. Yeah. So that was actually one of my, one of the, the parts that I died laughing from is because he's the way he snatches the phone, uh, the the microphone, and starts singing. How everybody's like, this like you could see it on this their face. Nigga because, here. <laughs> right, like you know they're they're performers, so they they're able to keep it going. But man, Otis wanted to beat that ass, and he was like, they want me, they you they want more. <laughs> you know, like he could not see what, that what he did was wrong. And so it, I, I'm not surprised that they wanted to have more security to make sure his ass did not get on that stage again. Or just pop up in some random Internet. city. Right. So then, so then, because he couldn't get his way that way, now there's two temptations out there. But did you see like how strategically he was like chipping away at Eddie? Mm-hmm. He was. He was like... Well, they did this to me. How long do you think before they do it to you? Look at what they're doing exactly. to Paul. Here, have some uh-huh. cocaine. Okay. So so then that 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 that's an another additional part of, of borderline personality and that they are able, they're master manipulators. You mm-hmm. know, I think when I was when I was practicing, it was like uh especially in like um the substance use clinics, it was like those were probably the hardest people to work with, but actually oh, kind of in- interesting. <laughs> They're kind of They're so fun because like, you're like, oh what the hell is going on inside of your mind? But if you are not on it every single second with them, it'll give you a damn headache because it's just, it's so, it's, it's so much. Be- it's so much. Because they, <laughs> they learn, they learn how to manipulate the system. And that's mm-hmm. what the, that I think that's what what David Ruffin was capable of doing. He was able to manipulate the system, um, whether it be Motown, whether it be the actual temptations themselves, or the individual that made up the group, like especially Eddie. Mm. You know. So. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Eddie, cornbread. Cornbread. <laughs> How'd you get that name? <laughs> he said that ain't why they call you cornbread. Is it? He just looked at him like. Uh, why else would they call me cornbread? <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's so cute and little. I love him. It. I just loved him. He's gonna throw Paul away like Alabama trash. That is still funny to me because <laughs> he meant it. Be my friend like that. Uh, and he had Diana Ross before Barry Gordy. Okay. Yo, Eddie was fine in real life. If you everybody out there go Google what the temptations looked like in real life. Eddie was low key fine. He was with that with that soprano voice. Mm. Until he got them 1980s glasses that was the size of his, his of goggles. Then it wasn't it wasn't cute no more. <laughs> but, but those were cute. I'm gonna get me some. They coming back. Don't wear them around me. Um okay. <laughs> 
I don't know. I think I am completely biased for my love of Eddie. Um, the only thing I really wanted to diagnose him with was his substance use. Um, I agree. I agree. I think, um, I think Eddie's role in the group was to try to keep everybody level-headed, you know, and I think um, that's where he and Otis bumped heads because, you know, Otis was just a little above. Like he always, he felt like he was above in some ways because he's the, the originator or the leader of the group. So Which Eddie is, is common like, with narcissism. Just on that idea. <laughs> <laughs> so Eddie's like, well, hold up, pump your brakes now. You, you, ain't, you ain't above the group. If nobody is above the group, that means you're not above the group. So what makes you think that you're the person to make all these decisions? You know, and so um, other than that, I do feel like Eddie did struggle with his, with his substance use. Um, but it didn't seem like it was alcoholism more so than it was cigarettes. Or tobacco that, and that is what I wanted to bring up. So, yes, he was uh, snorting cocaine with David. He was having a little taste there now and then with everybody else. But why is cigarette addiction not in the DSM? Because it's killing people. Eddie died from lung cancer from his 30 Ooh. plus years of smoking cigarettes. Like people really struggle with quitting. People can build a tolerance. People go through withdrawal. So why is cigarette addiction even if it's just use disorder or like, why is that a, not a part of the DSM? Do you feel like it's because it's legal and the government can tax it and make money from it? Absolutely. But here's my thing. Um, I do feel like it, because it's not criminalized, mm-hmm. that's why it's not in the DSM because alcohol did become criminalized, you know, um, in a way it, it did. There were, there were, purists um, are we talking about like prohibition prohibition right okay so prohibition came along that changed how everybody saw alcohol because I mean, at, at the at, you know at the very beginning alcohol was not seen as an issue we were drinking alcohol and when i say we americans and in the early 1800s were drinking alcohol you know three times seven times a day you know, and it wasn't until people <laughs> it's a big gap. three times, seven times a day. Well, you know, whatever, whichever one you want to have. Um, <laughs> and so it became an issue when people were, you know, not able to, to continue to live their daily functioning lives. You know, the abuse and things of that nature, people dying from it. And so prohibition came about and wanting to control the substance. Um but then it, it did, I do feel like increasingly all of the, all of our substances that are listed in a DSM are listed because it was criminalized and because mm-hmm. tobacco wasn't, doesn't have, you know, hallucination and delusion and those types of effects that. There's it, not it a, like an intoxicated state of right. cigarette. So that's why right. I guess I can get that. But still, and it doesn't impair. Like, it doesn't impair a judgment, right? So it, it's like, it's, it's not, it, it, it doesn't affect the, the mood or personality in a way. However, it is addictive mm-hmm. by na- in, in nature. So that's where it gets thrown under. I think it gets, it just gets chucked under addiction, um, substance use, other substance, whatever. Yeah, it's just other. But I feel like yeah. even gambling has its own category. Again, gambling has it, effect on 
the nu- the, on the nuclear system or on, on for that individual. So how how is that gambling affecting not only that individual but the the people around them? Just like other addictions, where cigarette smoking is like okay, it's secondhand smoke though. You still affecting the people around you if you're if you are putting getting cigarettes or obtaining cigarettes over, especially what how expensive they is now. I don't know if it's just mm. New York State, but good lord. Yeah, <laughs> So I don't see how I get, I mean, I see how, but I just feel like it should at least be in other considerations. There should at least be a subcategory further mentioning of it um, in the other. It should, it should just get more representation of how addicting it is, how hard it is for people to quit, um, Mm -hmm. how impactful it is in people's day-to-day lives. Um, And granted times have changed where cigarette smoke is not as, um, widely prevalent as it may have been, especially in the 60s and 70s. Like if you watch Jaws, they were smoking in the emergency room. Like, so that has definitely changed, but there are still people who are really struggling with cigarette smoke addiction. Um, So I just felt like it should, should, you know. I think overall, the DSM does need to be updated. Absolutely. I mean, it it does need to be updated. Just the same way our code of ethics are being updated, um, our actual standards for the counseling profession is being updated. It, it does stand. Um, it, it 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 does need to be updated as well. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, we are at DSM five. I just expect us. If we're at DSM five, there should be so much more that has been updated with all of the changes with the way that the world constantly changes with us being at five. This is the fifth edition. This is the, through five edits, revisions and updates. I just felt like we should be further along in a multitude of different areas, neither here nor there. Again, we will reference that the DSM is an oppressive tool used by the larger to control the many. Um, but, mm-hmm. uh, and that's one thing that our, uh, our previous guest, uh, Jovan, she had mentioned in, um, I remember we had a meeting with Dr. Umar once and she really asked him, like, if this is such an oppressive tool, if the DSM is, is it, we know that it's um, from a white supremacist lens, how do I best, most effectively do my job while still using this opp- oppressive tool? Um, and it was a really hard question to, to answer. Um, I can't really because, remember the answer because the question was so dope, but and I don't think the question was really answered into the way that we felt that it really needed to be as, as training clinicians at the time. Um, but I, I feel like each clinician has to go on their journey of how to uplift while still using these oppressive tools. And it's, it's a really hard position to be in, but I feel like it's our duty to continue to liberate each and every individual that, we collectively liberate because we don't have the power to do it. Um, but working mm-hmm. with those to ensure that they have all that they need to be as self-realized, actualized and fulfilled as they possibly can. Right. I agree. You know, and if we're, if we're going to change the DSM, a lot of that, a lot of that change is, is very systemic, you know, mm-hmm. because if we, if we are changing our DSM, then it means that the insurance companies are going to have to change what they deem as um, appropriate treatment for a given diagnosis. 
you know, because insurance company do, uh, do control a lot of, uh, a lot of that. Also, I do feel that, um, a lot of, a lot of clinicians, if they're, if they're wanting to get away from that systemic oppression is just to not use it at all. So just do a sliding scale and not involve insurance at all. But again, that goes into the individual that goes into the type of practice that they're operating in. Because if you really don't want to uh, continue to oppress your clients by using this tool, the only reason why we would use it is for, for HMO purposes mm. to be paid and, and for, you know, billing insurances. So and I outline I, treatment to others because your client isn't getting the outline of treatment. They are going through the experience of treatment with you. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're communicating outwards, Anywho, let's bring it back to the temptations. Let's talk about my personal favorite character from the movie, Paul. Mm-hmm. And the person have you, has, has you have identified me as in our friendship, Paul. <laughs> Paul. So he was such so, a sweetie. Yes, he was. Love him. I did. I and I felt really bad laughing about it. But when he was uh, drunk on stage and he was singing... Uh, singing the song terribly and messing the dance moves. I said, let me find yes. out. Let me find out Paul invented chapter screw. You can have your fortune told. I was like, I'm going to hell. Yes. I should have laughed at that. <laughs> Listen, he sung that from his gut. Okay? Because that's all. He had have nothing else to give. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and just the dance move. And then um, when they have him actually coming back on, but um, someone was doing a voiceover for his Richard. part. I can't remember. Richard. Richard did the voiceover for his part. And they had the dun, dun, dun. And they, he woke up on, <laughs> on the stage. Like it, it startled him. He was that intoxicated. That intoxicated. You know, and then it, it even came down to like, you know, Eddie saying someone needs to be with him around the clock making sure that he's not, he's, he's keeping his hand off the bottle, you know, um, the dedication he had to getting him back. But again, like, I don't think substance use, and, and honestly, I, because I believe even at the time, AA wasn't even around. Right. So, you know, the treatment and the, the look of, of addiction was very different back then. But like how I, I really feel like, how did Eddie even feel like that was, uh, realistic like to literally sit with somebody 24 hours a day and keep them from drinking right because like even the fact that, that was like, his solution yeah yeah because Otis is like well how did that work for you like you you're around him the most how how were how effective were you at keeping him from not drinking mm. you know and I think that I think that was a real point like if someone is addicted they're gonna get what they want you know the addiction they're no longer themselves. The addiction is controlling them. So even if they are telling, you know, you as the family member or friend that I'm going to stop, the addiction says something else. And mm-hmm. they, they, they become the addiction. They're no longer themselves. So, you know, I think with Eddie trying to do that, he didn't really understand the concept of addiction. Right. And I was just wanted to mention that AA was around at the time. AA officially started in 1935. Um, NA started yes. in 51, I believe. But again, the real, the how realistic is it to expect to get to 
each and every single different city, locate a meeting, get them to go to the meeting, have that meeting fit in with sound check, rehearsals, mm-hmm. actual performances, eating, sleeping. Like it just it mm-hmm. just wasn't realistic without him really wanting to make that change. Um, mm-hmm. And in real life, it wasn't mentioned in the movie, but um, in real life, Paul did suffer from sickle cell anemia. And that is part of the reason why when he was out for so long, it it was very difficult for him to recover. Um, He was battling more than just alcoholism. He was dealing with a serious illness that does um, affect African-American community. And that is part of what him, that loss of being on stage, being a part of the group, it, it changed his entire lifestyle. And that is part of what led to the depression the extreme substance use and unfortunately his suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, when I, every time I hear Papa was a Rolling Stone, that's a, that's a hard song to, to listen to. I mean, it, for one, it didn't match who Paul was, but the, the somber feeling of what they were talking about in that song matched what you were seeing in that scene of him struggling with his addiction. You Whoever know, arranged that score needs an Academy mm. Award because that music right. was right on time. It, you're right. right. That song, like Paul wasn't in that song. Like it didn't match what he was what he was going through. But the depiction right. of of Eddie, you know, rise and fall with his career. David spiraling mm-hmm. out of control. Um, Paul spiraling out of control. Just the music all throughout the film, but especially that scene. That they scene. Just, Chef's kiss. They did they think. I know, I know, especially that when you hear the gun pop. Mm. You know, just that moment, like that, oh that was I think that was the, the saddest moment for me in the movie. Was yeah. his was his suicide. It was yeah. sad to see Paul go. I struggled with diagnosing him as well because it was a lot of like what came first, the chicken or the egg. Um, right, right. It was with the alcohol use disorder. Okay, yes, and it was severe in that, but also the major depressive disorder. Was the was it substance in, induced depressive disorder? Did the drinking cause the depression? Was it in real life because he was struggling with an illness? Was it depressive disorder due to another medical condition? Like which which one came first? And it just, mm-hmm. all of it together, because, you know, it, it was told from Otis's point of view and we don't really know the mm-hmm. specifics of it. It just is a bad mm-hmm. cocktail for, um, unfortunately, the loss of an, an incredible person. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that the movie did a good job of addressing suicide, mm-hmm. how real it is. And I think that Paul kind of gave hints and everyone just assumed that, oh, he's not in the group. He's just sad but it'll be okay type thing. But he told Otis, he said, um, he said, I'm going to die. I swear, I'm going to die. Like he told Otis, I'm going to die if I'm not in the group. But he could not handle mm-hmm. the loss of, of performance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could not handle being ill. Could not, you know, the, the mm-hmm. depressive symptoms, the, you know, uh, topped with alcohol, which is a depressant anyway. It just, mm-hmm. 
I feel that we what? don't address uh, suicide and suicidality in Black men enough. Um, I feel like the questions that we use to even address suicidality could be more culturally relevant, especially when working with men. Mm-hmm. Like as we saw with Paul, men do tend to use more deadly means to to hurt themselves, and so they are more likely to die from a suicide attempt. In any time working with men, just being purposeful in the way that you ask questions instead of saying, do you want to kill yourself? Just coming out like that would get a very different response from, do you feel like a burden to anybody? Mm-hmm. Do you feel that anybody's life would be better if you just weren't here? Those are very mm-hmm. different questions than do you want to kill yourself? Um, sometimes mm-hmm. in, in a crisis state, you do need to be as frank as that. You do need to see if that person does have a plan and how far it does go. Um, But I feel like ideation could be detected a lot sooner if Mm -hmm. more clinicians were intentional in the way that they addressed concerns. I agree. Um, You know, when when looking at the movie, it started off with Paul just drinking milk from, you know, Mm -hmm. his thermos. thermos. (laughs) Right. To him actually drinking um, from David's, you know, flask. Flask. Again. And so, um, to me, it, it seemed like Paul was, was from, and from the depiction of the movie, from, and I'm looking just from the movie, he seemed like the happy, you know, upbeat, you know, let's dance, let's sing. You know, mm-hmm. he, was the, he was the dancer, you know, he was the choreographer, if you will, um, of The Temptations. And so, um, when I look at that and, and see that, I think maybe it was depression and then substance use because it, and then the, and then here's this misconception that just because someone's upbeat, the dancer, the, the, the clown, that they the can't be person, depressed. Exactly. Right. So just looking at the depiction of him, is just like, Oh no, it must be alcohol then depression. But for me, especially being someone who, who, who struggles with depression and anxiety personally, it's like, People think that, oh, when Rosie show up, she's on, she, she's ready. She's the, the, the person to keep everybody laughing and clowning. But deep down inside, I'm trying my best to show that I'm not hurt so no one's concerned about me. I don't, I don't want you to think about that. I want you to think about something else. And so I do feel like um, Paul was more focused on the group and, and performing because he didn't want to, to worry or think about his own depression. Because in some ways, I think he was in denial of what he was really feeling because, no, that can't be me. I'm not that, that somber, sad person. I, I, I want to dance. I want to be happy. Um, so alcohol will make me feel better. And I can, I can be more socially interactive when I don't want to be because my depression is kicking in. My depression tells me to isolate, but alcohol gives me the liquid courage to be around and to socialize. And on top of that, when people are socializing, they're drinking anyway, right? So it's like, well, let me be a part of this because then at least this will make me feel like I'm more of myself when in actuality, we're, we're actually causing more harm than good. And Paul had a lot of pressures that like were hinted on in the film. He was already married. He had four kids by the time that four. the group was just started. Like he mm-hmm. really had a lot that he was trying to hold down on top of that boisterous uh, personality that he did have. And while it's infectious, people expect you to be able to maintain that at all times, which is unfair exactly. and unreasonable. You are not always 
in your regular life, anyone's hired entertainment. And um, thank you for, you know, disclosing and sharing. And I can say that is why part of the reason why I am so protective over you. And I don't like Mm -hmm. it when people try to hype you up. Like when you have that high energy, I don't like it when people Mm -hmm. try to hype it up and like, yes, let's get Rosie to dance. Let's get Rosie to do Mm -hmm. this. And I'd be like, she's not a fucking clown. Leave her alone. (laughs) (laughs) She'll dance if she want to dance. Gosh, <laughs> sit your ass down exactly. somewhere. Get the fuck out of our right. face. <laughs> right, but, right, you know. And that is, I really <laughs> wish that somebody would have done that for Paul because um, like how you mm-hmm. said, when you're socializing, a lot of times alcohol is involved. And I just, um, I just feel like it personally for me, I, I am try, I try to be cautious in like, come on, have a drink with me. After you tell me once, that needs to be me letting that go because, mm-hmm. um, because people do try to like peer pressure people into drinking. Um, oh, after yeah. somebody tells you no once, okay, maybe the second time, have a drink with your friend, like Blue said. <laughs> but mm-hmm. after that, it really needs to stop because for somebody, it might, for one person, you could just be encouraging them to sit down and socialize and share a drink with you. But for somebody else that has, that might have an addictive personality, you could be literally lighting a match in their life. Yeah. And so, yeah people need to be conscientious of how much you try to push what what it is that you're wanting from someone on others. Because okay. like the old saying goes, you really never know what other people are dealing with. And so right. you need to just make sure that you are handling things how you would want to be handled. Right. And so, all right, people, yeah, I think that was the hardest, that was the hardest, yeah, loss. I think so. And then one of the another thing that I'm noticing also, not only the the abuse of artists by record labels, but the actual substance use that happens with a lot of artists as well. Mm. You know, and the the just the performer, you have to be a performer, you have to be on. So mm-hmm. the the desire and the need, again, we're human, you know, we have mm-hmm. our ups and downs. And so when you're having your day of being down and just just naturally just going through the phases of being uh, a human and having emotion, um, you can't, you don't have time to be down. You don't have time to really feel those emotions normally or naturally. So then there is this, this increased desire to be like, okay, now I need to get something to keep me active. I need to get something to make me feel uh, like I'm up rather than down. You know, or mm-hmm. maybe I'm, I'm, I'm way too wired, you know, I'm way too hype and I need something to calm me down. Right. So it's like the, like, like we said, like, which comes first, the mental illness or the actual substance use? Because a lot of people may not realize, and in some cases it could be bipolar disorder where someone it could, it could be extremely manic and, mm-hmm. and productive and then crash. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so now we got to get them back productive. So now we need to give them a stimulant to get them productive. But maybe that's not exactly what they needed for their for actually treating their mental health. So a lot of times it seems as if artists are, um, you know, self-prescribed, self-medicating in a sense, rather than being, hey, you know, record label. And I don't even know who they would go to, PR, whomever. I mean, think of it, I, the perfect example to me is like in, recent time is Kanye. I was like, thinking the exact same to? thing. Right. Like who can, who can he really go to to say, Hey guys, this is where I am. I need help. 
right? Because it, they're not designed to help them. The record label, the record industry, like music industry is not designed to help their performers. It's designed to get money. And one thing that I definitely wanted to highlight about Kanye, like, yes, we, I don't agree with any of the things that he's been saying or doing recently, but um, I know that a lot of people, uh, a quick go-to and a dismissive statement for him has been, he does this when music is about to come out. Every time he does this, he has a project. But if you know anything about the treatment of bipolar disorder, um, there are a lot of people who feel like the medication that is prescribed for bipolar disorder, it inhibits their creativity. And so he might be feeling like he is in a need to be creative and can't because of the medication. And so in order to be creative, in order to have all of those that that genius level that he does have to create music, to hear sounds, to create beats. Um, he goes off of his medication and going off his medication. He then has these manic episodes where he says these things, he does these things, um, all of this, the, the circus that creates around him. And so, yes, it does coincide with him releasing projects, not just because, not just as a publicity stunt, but because he's going off his medication in order to feel creative again, because a lot of people do mention being, feeling like their creativity is stifled and that they can't be productive. They can't work when they're on that medication. And so that is something that I did recognize with the the coincidence of those things going, the timing rather, going kind of hand in hand. And so the record industry kind of plays a, a big, like you were just saying, but big part of that. And so we kind of see the correlation between what's happening more recently with Kanye, um, as well as how mental health was being treated by um, the music industry back then and how they weren't getting what they needed. And really, unfortunately, a lot hasn't changed. People aren't still aren't being able to get what they need. And that is that is what disheartens me. And especially that all of the people that we have been talking today are talented, beautiful Black men who just were unable to get the help and the assistance that they needed. Mm -hmm. I agree. And so unfortunately, the Temptations movie is really just it's a, it's a great movie to watch just, you know, to understand the history of our, our music, the, the culture that we developed through Motown, right? And it pays homage to them. Um, however, it does give us this stark reality of the limitations and the imperfections of our music industry and how much we really need to um, give a little bit more support and treat our, our I would say celebrities, but our musical performers and, mm -hmm. and, and realize that they're human. They're not Athletes objects. as well. Athletes as Athletes well, performers as well. along any, that's a lot of pressure and that's a lot of demand that I don't think yeah. that uh, civilians really understand the full pressure of. Right, right. And so, and we, we tend to put that added pressure on them by, you know, not giving them the the space or just the credit of of being honest and open about their actual mental health, you know, and feeling like they have to keep it from us. And in some ways, I, I don't blame them for keeping it from us because we can be pretty cruel and harsh people when it does come down to someone being vulnerable and saying, hey, I'm actually not that perfect. You yeah, know, we're a and bunch we of assholes. 
We're a bunch of we meme making are. Twitter finger <laughs> bitches. <laughs> right? Right? And we're the we ungrateful have, sons of bitches. <laughs> we are. We are. And we put our we put our celebrities and people uh, so high on these pedestals that mm-hmm. we expect them to be perfect and not have issues. But I think I think it's high time that we we change that narrative, that we we allow these people to be human. I agree. And I also think that Temptations is just an awesome, all-around, great miniseries. Does this one count as a musical? Because there was music in this one, too. It, I do feel like it counts as a musical. I would categorize it as a musical. Uh, I, I'm not, I, trust me, I'm doing this, this movie and sitcom uh, podcast. Like, I'm some, like, movie aficionado, guru. right? <laughs> I know. I know nothing about film. You know, like... <laughs> I hardly remember the damn character's name, okay? And actors and actresses' real names. So, um, but for me, the real... real, Right, no matter. (laughs) The real issue here is just really highlighting the love for the art, you know? And it was was masterfully, like, just created and put together. Maybe Otis' story might be a little off, but I do, (laughs) I did enjoy this musical. Yeah, it was hella off. He got sued. But, you know, I... I'm glad that he was willing to take that one from the team because it gave us a great, <laughs> a great something to watch on VH1 like four times a week because it comes on all of the time. But <laughs> if you would like to support the show to help us get more content out to you all, you can visit our website and you can follow the support the show link, become a Patreon member or donate on our cash app at dollar sign the DSM podcast. Now, we're happy to get the kind of money that jingles, but we'd rather get the kind that folds, like Lisa McDowell said. (laughs) And as always, be sure to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a comment because we are counselors and actually care what you have to say. Until next time.